Well, I'd like to begin this morning by wishing everyone a happy Father's Day. To those of you who are fathers, or stepfathers, grandfathers, fathers-to-be or fathers-in-law, we, we bless you. We say thank God for you, for your love, your sacrifice, your leadership uh, in the family and in the body of Christ. You are significant. The role of the father is, is significant today. And we are thankful for that. We, we thank God for the gift that you are to your family, to your extended family, and to our church family. Well, we understand, too, that some of you uh, men, as married men, desire to be fathers, and yet in God's providence, that's not worked uh, yet. And others of you are hoping to be married someday and have children of your own. You'd like to be a father. And we join with both of you in those categories in asking uh, your desire to come to pass in God's kingdom, in his providence, in the right time. Right thing, the right time, in the right way, for the right reason. Now, all of you have a father. Uh, that's undeniable. Um, perhaps deceased or still living. And today is the day that we set aside to say thank you, Father. Thank you, God, for our fathers. Um, all of their weaknesses notwithstanding, they are one of God's gifts to us because without our Father, we would not enjoy the gift of life. And so let's just begin by pausing to say thank God for our fathers. Father, you taught us to pray, Our Father, who is in heaven, blessed be your name. You revealed yourself to us as Father. And so, Father, we, we just begin uh, this morning by celebrating our gift of being your children. And we want to begin by saying thank you for our fathers who gave us the gift of life. We realize, Lord, that without them, we would not be privileged to experience relationship with you and others in the way that we currently have. So we say thank you. Thank you for the, the gifts of life, the gifts of wisdom and experience. I pray, God, that uh, you would bless our fathers. Lord, we welcome you here now as our Father to teach us and instruct us in the way that we should go. Bring the kingdom among us in the ways you know we need. You said it's your great pleasure to give us the kingdom. And so as your children, we receive. And not, Lord, just here, but among our kids as well and Vineyard Kids next door. Lord, few of us remember anything we really heard uh, younger than the age of five, but we, we well remember how we were formed and shaped. And I, and I pray that our kids would be formed and shaped to grow to love and serve you, that, that experiencing your presence with other Christians in church is a positive, powerful thing. Visit those who are serving and teaching our kids today, too. We welcome you among us, God. Amen. My father, James Frederick Hare, uh, was born in Bartonville on the 10th of February, 1926, the fourth of seven sons, along with four sisters, to David August, or D.A., and Rose Yoder Hare. Uh, that same year, D.A., while then working at Keystone Steel and Wire, started a trucking business. He was hauling coal to help uh, people around the city of Peoria heat their home in the winter. And then in order to supplement his income in the warmer months, he began hauling topsoil, growing plants, and kicked pasture grass for sod. And that business eventually grew into the hair nursery, 
uh, if you're around here, you're familiar with that, um, that was purchased by my dad and his two brothers, Rudy and John, in 1945. My dad met my mother, Virginia, in the young adult group in church. He proposed and they married when they were both very young. They had six children, my three older sisters, Joyce, Diane, Nancy, five-year gap, then me, another five-year gap, my two brothers, Tim and Nate. We grew up here in Peoria. In fact, in the house at 6141 Evergreen Circle that's now lived in by Jim Artis, our mayor. Uh, we were there in Evergreen Circle, surrounded by aunts and uncles and a ton of cousins. And it was just a great time in life. You know, you're influenced a lot by your parents, uh, the uh, values that they embrace, their lifestyle, the environment in which you're nurtured, whether they intend to or not, but you're influenced a lot by family and extended family. We were a very typical working class family shaped by our Germanic Anabaptist values of faith and hard work and simplicity and frugality and humility. My father was elected as a lay minister in the Apostolic Christian Church the year I was born, 1956. Story is told that he was so nervous as a, as a, as a dad, uh, in, in church being called up in public that he stumbled up to the front of the church carrying the diaper bag. <laughs> when they actually ordained him into the ministry. One of my father's favorite Bible verses from the King James Version was Ephesians 6.4, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And to this very day, he believes that fitness for ministry in many ways depends upon one's ability to lead his family and raise his children well. Well, hopefully most of us could look in the rearview mirror at our parents, particularly our father, and find a few positive lessons, as well as, of course, identifying a few of the things that we don't want to repeat. I mean, we all need a Savior, right? Our parents notwithstanding. And this morning, I'd like to share just five life lessons that my father taught me that will hopefully encourage you in your journey of faith today. The first is a centrality of a living faith. From the time that I was young, I remember my dad being a very deeply religious man, uh, since he was a lay pastor, of course, that meant every Sunday morning and Wednesday night, uh, church attendance for us was a priority. Whether we would attend was never questioned. It was a habit. It didn't matter how late we stayed up on Saturday night watching Netflix or how busy we were. No, seriously. Uh, we, we just went. Uh, you know, you could be a near death and you went to church. It was a habit that was not questioned. There were also a bevy of other church-related activities that filled almost every available moment, as far as my recollection is concerned. Travel to surrounding towns where he would be the guest minister that day. Then we would attend what was called a lunch call, where you would eat lunch with people you didn't know. And then you would be followed, it would be followed by a dinner at somebody's house you didn't know. And then we would drive home very late in the evening while my dad listened to talk radio. There were potlucks and hymn sings and vacation Bible schools and the like. At the personal level, I witnessed the typical prayers at mealtimes, um, refusal to engage in what was considered worldly activity. By that, I mean no sinful activities. No drinking, no dancing, no smoking, no owning or watching a television, no playing cards, no attending movies, not having fun of any kind. <laughs> no nothing. But then I also was privileged to see the gym hair that no one else ever saw. 
And that was a man who was faithfully committed to reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures every morning, very early. Whenever I awoke, I, I would see him reading and studying the Bible. Consistent in prayer, every night, kneeling for what seemed like a long time by the side of his bed, praying. And then caring for the sick every week, going to the hospital to pray for those that were sick. What I observed was what I'm calling the centrality of a living faith in Jesus and how it informed and shaped almost every aspect of his and our lives. Now, allow me to illustrate this principle with two different diagrams you'll see on the PowerPoint. In the first diagram, faith that's labeled as Jesus and the church in the upper right corner is is represented as one of the many slices of the pie of life with marriage and family, kids, work, recreation, leisure, education, the future, your hobbies. It's, It's a compartmentalized view of life where our relationship with Jesus and his church is relegated to perhaps an hour on, say, two out of four Sundays a month. There might be a slight time devoted to uh, reading the Bible, uh, perhaps an occasional offering or two, praying as a need or a crisis arises. But after these expressions, we pretty much live the rest of the slices of the pie of our life on our own terms and for our own pleasure. In the second and contrasting diagram, you'll notice that our relationship with Jesus and his church is at the very center of all of life, and it informs and shapes and influences everything about our lives. Faith, in this way, defined as a real relationship with the living God through Christ and his people, the church expressed in what we do and what we think and what we say. It's integrated into every slice of the pie of our lives. We live one integrated life. There aren't any distinctions between that which is sacred and secular, that which is public or private, what we do at home or work. It, It all reflects a commitment to Christ and his church. No compartmentalized view of life where in any particular pocket we just do as we please. Thank you very much. All of the slices of the pie of life come under the rule of Jesus and his church or the kingdom, as it were. And my father sought to live this one integrated life where every area is shaped and molded and and framed and informed by his love of Jesus and the church. For instance, we wouldn't go out to eat anywhere on a Sunday because he so strongly believed in the Sabbath as a day of rest and no work that he was refu- he refused to ever make anyone else work. And so his principle was we don't go out to out to eat. He would hire handicapped or marginally uh, capable employees, even though they cost him time and resources and productivity, because he saw business 
as ministry to others, not just about bottom line productivity and profitability. He would stick to his word, never promising one thing and doing another. He was always honest, even if it cost him. He bore the fruit of the Holy Spirit, whether at work, whether at home, whether at the hardware store or on vacation. He was consistent in all those realms. He worked hard at integrating his faith, his love for Jesus and the church into every aspect of the pie of life. It was not compartmentalized. And so the lesson was what we read in Matthew's gospel, the the sixth chapter, the 33rd verse, where Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. He sought to continually place the kingdom of God, a love for Jesus and his church, and doing right, living righteously at the very center of all aspects of his life. And so for me today, the challenge comes back to wrestling every day with questions like this. How does loving Jesus and his church, uh, how does loving the kingdom and seeking to live right influence and shape my decisions and my choices regarding recreation and leisure, how I manage my money, the friends I choose, what I do with my my uh, discretionary time and money, what I do with uh, uh, dreams for the future, how I raise my children, how I treat my spouse, what kind of an employer or employee I am, how regularly I, I practice the disciplines of the faith and so forth. Questions like, how does loving Jesus and his church, his kingdom, a desire for right living, inform and shape and influence all the pockets of my life, what I think and what I say and what I do, wherever I work and live and play and go to school and eat out and do my shopping? How do I live one integrated life in love with Jesus and his church, seeking first his kingdom and a desire to live right above all else? The second life lesson that I'd like to share and challenge you with is commitment to marriage. My dad was uh, uh, married to my mom on the 14th of March, 1948. That's 64 years still going strong. Through the years, they had what I would call a, a functional marriage model. My dad was the sole breadwinner and decision maker, largely. My mother was a stay-at-home mom who did all the cooking and the cleaning, the shopping, the baking, the laundry. She still fixes my dad's lunch when he goes to work. (laughs) He could not cook nor do a load of laundry if his life depended on it. (laughs) And I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) I'm not necessarily advocating this model. (laughs) There are a lot of models for marriage that work. Uh, the one that I employ is the oneness marriage model, you know, out of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and we'll unpack that in another occasion. But at the heart of my parents' model for marriage was an unqualified commitment to love and honor one another. Now, I never, ever once heard my father direct a derogatory or critical word towards my mother. He esteemed her. He valued her. He honored her. I only remember them disagreeing spiritedly, say fighting, (laughs) one time, which in itself is perhaps dysfunctional, because I know what happened at other times. I just never saw it. And uh, 
even though they were a very meager means, I'll never forget that every birthday and every Christmas was a, was a special occasion for a special gift. He came home and kissed her on the cheek uh, at, when he got home from work every day and kissed her goodbye in the morning. Um, but he valued, loved, honored, and esteemed her. And the lesson that I'm challenged with is what we find in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, the fifth chapter, where the Apostle Paul wrote, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 25, Husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. So there's a challenge here for those of us men who are married to treat our wives with the same love as Christ did the church. He gave his life for her. God's call men, those of us who are married, those of you who will be married someday, is to give your life for your wife. My parents' marriage model was an unqualified commitment to an imperfect person. Until death do they part, modeled through sacrifice, through honor, and hard work. And that's the challenge that that a Christ-like marriage provides for all of us, especially the men. Now, whether my mom and dad ever understood it or not, I believe that uh, they provided one of the best things they possibly could do for their children, and that was have a God-honoring marriage. Parents will often ask us, my wife and I, you know, now that our kids are raised and out of the home and reasonably stable and in order and God-loving, like, what's the secret to, you know, raising kids today? And I don't have any secrets, uh, but I will say one of the best bits of child-rearing advice is this, have a strong marriage. If you don't have a strong marriage, you have little to give your children. The second thing that I often tell people is this, and if this helps some of you... God bless it, is that parents whose children turn out well often take too much of the credit, and parents whose children turn out poorly take way too much of the blame. That really what we need to do is walk humbly with our heads held low and with, a, with gratefulness and humility tell God, thank you for what you're giving, giving me to steward. The clay can't say to the potter, why'd you do it this way? Why'd they turn out this way? You do the best job you possibly can. There are no formulas for child rearing. We all should know that, yet we kind of want the magic bullet. We want the pill to take to, to make them all turn out the way we desire. The truth is there are no formulas. You walk humbly with your God. You trust in him to do the best job you possibly can, and you offer your children up to God as a gift. Husbands, our call is to love and honor and cherish our wife as Christ does the church. Wives, your call is to love and support and care for your husband as Christ does his church. Now, please understand, this is no judgment or condemnation for any of you who have a failed marriage. You know, you can't control what's already done and in the past. But every one of us, whether we're single or whether we're married, now has... God's gift, the power of choice to invest the future, however we choose. And so at that point, we can, we can say, God, we're, we're going to choose to honor you and choose right. 
you know, your marriage today from this point forward can thrive and prosper and be blessed as you do what Christ tells us to do. Deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow him. The other things you can do, you repent, which is when you own your stuff and you forgive, which is you let go of the debt you want somebody else to pay. And then you trust the Holy Spirit to work. So you you do what Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow him. You repent and you forgive and you trust the Holy Spirit. And therein is a blueprint for healthy, thriving, successful marriages. I want the vineyard to be a marriage and family loving church. And so before I move off this subject, I want to give you one last bit of fuel for marriage. It's what I call learning the power of the threes. Threes as in three words. Are you ready? I love you. You were right. I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. You are awesome. Buy yourself something. All right, I'll, I'll repeat those so you might want to take a take that. I love you. You were right. I was wrong. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. You are awesome. Buy yourself something. Life lesson number three, the love of all people. When I was young and my, my friends were all spending their summers swimming at the country club and boating on the Illinois River out of the Ivy Club and playing tennis. I was working with my father. Now, I didn't know enough to complain because I actually enjoyed the adventure. I remember Injun Joe. He was the toothless, full-blooded Cherokee who could neither read nor write but could swing a sledgehammer like nobody's business. There was Durr Casley. He was a river rat from up north somewhere. Eddie Gaines, he was the part-time fireman who lived over the bluff, as we used to say in those days. Kenny and his handicapped son, Doc. There was Don Schlumpf, who could fix or build anything. There was bow-legged Ray Michaels, Dink, the illiterate tractor operator, the Miller twins, who were as crooked as the day is long. Men of all stripes, socially, economically, uh, educationally, And I actually thought that this strange mix of great people from all sides of the tracks working together was normal. I mean, I just actually thought all companies and organizations probably looked like this. Boy, was I naive. But I did learn a lesson, and that's that my father loved all people. Uh, He didn't look at certain groups or classes of people as inferior. He looked at uh, all people. And he lived what the Bible calls the great commandment. It's found for us in Mark's gospel, the 12th chapter. When on one occasion, a religious leader asked Jesus, of of all the 640 commands, which is the most important one? And Jesus replied and said this, Mark chapter 12. The most important commandment is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So friends, no matter what your occupation, your place and station in life, there is no higher calling than to love people. Period. Not just people like yourselves, but people of all kinds, as diverse and as different, as unique as they are, with all of their different ways of doing things, all of their different beliefs, all their irritating idiosyncrasies and habits. you got to just love them. That's the highest call. 
We're to love people, period. And the Apostle Paul framed it this way to his understudy, Timothy. He wanted to make sure Tim got it. And so he said in 1 Timothy 1, 5, Hey, Timothy, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love. That comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. That's it. The bottom line. The, the bottom line for Paul was that you're committed to love. He said it this way to the church at Corinth. They had a few problems, and he was trying to fix them. Paul said this on, on another occasion. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I'd only be a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So in many ways, friends, there is no higher calling than to love people. No amount of other religious activity, whether it's Bible study, church or small group attendance, prayer, fasting, resisting temptation and sin, sharing our faith, going on a missions trip, giving sacrificially, planting a new church, none of this stuff can eclipse the calling of loving people, period. None of these things will cause us to grow personally and spiritually in the way that loving people will. I love the model of my father that he loved that wild assortment of odd people. Now, most of them, while respecting my father's convictions, never came to faith through his witness. But that never changed the fact of his unending love for all of them. Loving people is where the Christian faith finds its most powerful expression. Fourth lesson is the dignity of all work. My father was a very hardworking blue-collar business owner who worked really long hours. I inherited his predisposition, and I'm now in recovery from workaholism. Not doing too good at it, but (laughs) pray for me. He would work all day, come home at night, and then go out and see potential customers. He would sit at the kitchen table for for long hours in the evening doing what he called figuring work. And what that meant was invoicing and creating estimates and, and doing the ordering and managing the payroll, the kind of stuff that you did after hours. He was the hardest working person in the entire company. It would employ 150 or 200 people in the busy season. And I remember we'd be working on a job site And Jim's truck, number six, would pull up to the job site, and everyone would kick into high gear. Quick! Look busy, even if you just have to make up something. Jim's here! You know, (laughs) everybody would, like, be scurrying around and dust flying, and as Jim would hop out of the truck and work like a banshee for ten minutes and hop in his truck and leave again. Everybody would go, whew! Oh, we can rest. Jim's gone. Many of my parents' best friends were also the owners of these kinds of businesses and trades. And so what I learned from him at an early age is rooted in what we find in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, these instructions from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Colossians, chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Verse 23. Work willingly at whatever you do, 
as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. So God ordained work long before the curse. Work didn't come as a result of the curse. Okay, you'll know that. He ordained that we work six days, we rest one, that the rhythm of our life reflects this natural balance of work and rest, work and rest. And we're to work, as the text reads, as unto the Lord, who is our real boss. You, you know that your boss is not your boss. Your advisor is not your advisor. Jesus is the boss for whom we work. It's, it's, he, he is the real boss. And that everybody that works is worthy of respect because they're created in God's image and they are fulfilling his mandate, his creation in, uh, intent, which is to work. And it's helpful to remember that people end up in the jobs they do uh, for an infinite variety of reasons. Um, and many of them are beyond their choice or their control. The truth is, is that there's not a pecking order of importance in people based upon their work. Our culture may judge and weigh certain jobs and certain people as more important or less significant because of their job, but but... In God's kingdom, there's not a pecking order of importance. The janitor is as significant as the CEO. The cashier is just as significant as the shift manager. The blue-collar tradesman or tradeswoman is just as significant as the blue-collar CEO or boss. And this revelation, this insight, will keep us from uh, judging people based on their vocation. We can see people from an entirely new perspective. And so I, I uh, learned the lesson from my father to, to see and value what some might call the little people. I urge you to do the same. Call them by name. You know, my kids give me a hard time because whenever we go to a restaurant, I call the waiter or waitress by his or her name. The cashier at Walmart, I call by their name. And my kids often, like, they're embarrassed by that. But, but subtly, they've learned an actually valuable life lesson and even though they, they joke now about it, there's actually something very powerful and very affirming by being called your, by your name. Because what it, what it teaches is that they're not just a, a, a nameless, faceless employee, a, a worker bee and a, and a cog. No, they, they are a significant human being with a real name and a real story. Well, I encourage you, genuinely learn to call all people. It affirms the dignity of, of work and their place in it. Ask them how they're doing and and try to listen to them uh, and, and hear what they're actually saying. And maybe even in response, ask a sensitively timed question. And who knows if you might even then have an occasion to say, can I pray for you right now? And always genuinely thank God for them. Why? Because all work has dignity and, and they're in it. And, and also because Jesus said, I tell you the truth, when you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. And so always thank God for them. All work, and all consequently all workers, providing that that work is legal, it's moral, and it contributes to the well-being of society, has dignity, and so do the people that are performing it. The last lesson I want to share with you this morning, number five, life lesson five, is the joy of generosity. 
Now, you would have never known this by outward observation and still don't to this day, but my parents were extremely generous. They never drew any attention to themselves. They never allowed their left hand to, or their children, or for anyone else for that matter, to know what their right hand is doing. That's a metaphor Jesus used in Matthew chapter 6 to talk about the, the privacy of your, your generosity. But I found out, because I was a teenager, and I snuck a peek at their checkbook. <laughs> and wow, was I blown away, what I did not know as a child. They gave away large sums of money to a variety of organizations. I've actually never told them that I did that, so you're the first group of people to know. <laughs> so, so don't tell them that if they ever show up here, you know. Now, in their denominational system, tithing to the church was not taught, but they faithfully paid their annual dues for church membership, and they regularly gave special offerings to raise money for a new or remodeled facility or for special projects around the world. I remember my dad giving generously to the Heifer Project. World Relief sponsored it in Haiti. There were orphanages in India and Japan that they sponsored, and then hurricane relief in various parts of the world. My dad would regularly landscape the new church buildings within that denomination anywhere in the country for free. It was his passion. Load up the semis, load up the stuff, and drive to, you know, Bay City, Michigan, or Sabina, Kansas, or wherever, so they could landscape the new church building, his gift. When St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church here in town uh, built their parsonage you know, 30 years ago, it was his company that provided the trees for free to bless uh, St. Vincent de Paul, where our neighbors worshipped. People in the community had a need, they gave. And the truth be known is that we could have maintained a much higher standard of living than we did, but they took pleasure in living with an open hand. And I'm convinced that's part of the reason that we grew up as a blessed family. So the lesson is what we're seeing modeled by the Apostle Paul and challenged with in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, verses 6 to 8, where we read this. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly, or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need, and then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Other translations of this verse read that you'll experience the manifold or the many measured forms of God's grace. All grace will abound to you, is how some translations read. When you purposely give with a generous heart, God will make sure that you are generously provided for. That's what we experienced as a kid. And so consequently, when Tina and I were married 35 years ago, we made a commitment to try to live with an open hand as well. Now, in both the Old and New Testaments, God's stewardship plan involves the giving of both tithes and offerings. That's the way God's people have always lived. And so in our 35 years together, Generosity in our life looked, on one hand, uh, uh, like uh, expressed in tithing, giving the first 10% of our gross income to the local church of which we are a part without reservation. Because tithing has much more to do with your heart before God than it does the needs of the church financially. 
So we, we, we've given a 10% and, and higher tithe to our local church every year that we've been married. And then, and then we've also given special offerings. God's plan is tithes and offerings. And those offerings could have been in the past for a building campaign, for a church planting, for the poor, for missionaries that we support around the globe to this day, local missionaries, other local charities, especially in seasons of the year like Advent, or in response to a special need. It might be hurricane relief or earthquake relief in China or Haiti. And then we've also tried to uh, model open-handedness as we've given to a long list of fundraisers to our children's school activities and uh, sports teams. We've given vehicles away and furniture, and we've adopted families for seasons of time that were in a critical period of need. And, and I'm, I'm sharing these things not to elevate ourselves by any way, but simply to say that by way of illustration that we've tried to live with an open hand and a generous life. And as we have, We've seen God's promise in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8 come to pass for us as well. In all the years, we've had what I would consider a modest salary, but God has always provided everything we need, and we've always had plenty left over to share with others. And one of the tokens of God's faithfulness is we've put four kids through college with absolutely no debt. I don't know how God did that. Honestly, I honestly don't. I, I suppose if we could go back and roll the, the time back, we could uncover it. But that's just one way of illustrating that that God was faithful to provide everything we needed and to have plenty left over to share with others. And it was because we made an early uh, decision, I believe, to, to honor God in the way that we see in Second Corinthians. God's challenge is to, to give generously with an open hand. And watching all kinds of grace come into your life. You need healing grace? That comes. You need washing machine last 25 year grace? That comes. You need tires last on your van for 70,000 miles? That kind of grace comes. And I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. That's the kind of grace that God puts into your life. It's, it's not always money grace. It's just grace of all kinds comes into your life when you choose to live with an open hand. I believe that you can see that same kind of power come to pass as well. Well, friends, my hope is that you're both encouraged today and you're challenged in your walk of faith. Uh, and what we're going to do now is just to move into a time of lifting our hearts and hands and voices to God in worship. God, we just say thank you for who you are and what you've done. You are a good father. It gives you great pleasure to give us the kingdom.